Section two of chapter nineteen of a history of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jen Raimundo. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter nineteen, section two. To keep the German princes steady was no easy task, but it was accomplished. Money was distributed among them, much less indeed than they asked, but much more than they had any decent pretense for asking. With the elector of Saxony a composition was made. He had, together with a strong appetite for subsidies, a great desire to be a member of the most select and illustrious orders of knighthood. It seems that, instead of the four hundred thousand rixdollars which he had demanded, he consented to accept one hundred thousand and the garter. His prime minister Schoning, the most covetous and perfidious of mankind, was secured by a pension. For the Duke of Brunswick-Lenenburg, William, not without difficulty, procured the long-desired title of Elector of Hanover. By such means as these, the breaches which had divided the coalition were so skilfully repaired that it appeared still to present a firm front to the enemy. William had complained bitterly to the Spanish government of the incapacity and inertness of Gastanaga. The Spanish government, helpless and drowsy as it was, could not be altogether insensible to the dangers which threatened Flanders and Brabant. Gastanaga was recalled, and William was invited to take upon himself the government of the Low Countries, with powers not less than regal. Philip II would not easily have believed that, within a century after his death, his great-grandson would implore the great-grandson of William the Silent to exercise the authority of a sovereign at Brussels. The offer was in one sense tempting but William was too wise to accept it. He knew that the population of the Spanish Netherlands was firmly attached to the Church of Rome. Every act of a Protestant ruler was certain to be regarded with suspicion by the clergy and people of those countries. Already Gastanaga, mortified by his disgrace, had written to inform the court of Rome that changes were in contemplation which would make Ghent and Antwerp as heretical as Amsterdam and London. It had doubtless also occurred to William that if, by governing mildly and justly, and by showing a decent respect for the ceremonies and the ministers of the Roman Catholic religion, he should succeed in obtaining the confidence of the Belgians, he would inevitably raise against himself a storm of obloquy in our island. He knew by experience what it was to govern two nations strongly attached to two different churches. A large party among the Episcopalians of England could not forgive him for having consented to the establishment of the Presbyterian polity in Scotland. A large party among the Presbyterians of Scotland blamed him for maintaining the Episcopal polity in England. If he now took under his protection masses, processions, graven images, friaries, nunneries, and, worst of all, Jesuit pulpits, Jesuit confessionals, and Jesuit colleges, what could he expect but that England and Scotland would join in one cry of reprobation? He therefore refused to accept the government of the Low Countries, and proposed that it should be entrusted to the Elector of Bavaria. The Elector of Bavaria was, after the Emperor, the most powerful of the Roman Catholic potentates of Germany. He was young, brave, and ambitious of military distinction. The Spanish court was willing to appoint him, and he was desirous to be appointed. But much delay was caused by an absurd difficulty. The Elector thought it beneath him to ask for what he wished to have. The formalists of the cabinet of Madrid thought it beneath the dignity of the Catholic king to give what had not been asked. Mediation was necessary, and was at last successful. But much time was lost, and the spring was far advanced before the new governor of the Netherlands entered on his functions. William had saved the coalition from the danger of perishing by disunion, but by no remonstrance, by no entreaty, by no bribe, could he prevail on his allies to be early in the field. 
they ought to have profited by the severe lesson which had been given them in the preceding year but again every one of them lingered and wondered why the rest were lingering and again he who singly wielded the whole power of france was found as his haughty motto had long boasted a match for a multitude of adversaries his enemies while still unready learned with dismay that he had taken the field in person at the head of his nobility on no occasion had that gallant aristocracy appeared with more splendour in his train a single circumstance may suffice to give a notion of the pomp and luxury of his camp among the musketeers of his household rode for the first time a stripling of seventeen who soon afterwards succeeded to the title of duke of st simon and to whom we owe those inestimable memoirs which have preserved for the delight and instruction of many lands and of many generations the vivid picture of a france which has long passed away though the boy's family was at that time very hard pressed for money he travelled with thirty-five horses and sumpter mules the princesses of the blood each surrounded by a group of high-born and graceful ladies accompanied the king and the smiles of so many charming women inspired the throng of vain and voluptuous but high-spirited gentlemen with more than common courage in the brilliant crowd which surrounded the french augustus appeared the french virgil the graceful the tender the melodious racine he had in conformity with the prevailing fashion become devout had given up writing for the theatre and having determined to apply himself vigorously to the discharge of the duties which belonged to him as historiographer of france he now came to see the great events which it was his office to record in the neighbourhood of mons louis entertained the ladies with the most magnificent review that had ever been seen in modern europe a hundred and twenty thousand of the finest troops in the world were drawn up in a line eight miles long it may be doubted whether such an army had ever been brought together under the roman eagles the show began early in the morning and was not over when the long summer day closed racine left the ground astonished deafened dazzled and tired to death in a private letter he ventured to give utterance to an amiable wish which he probably took good care not to whisper in the courtly circle would to heaven that all these poor fellows were in their cottages again with their wives and their little ones after this superb pageant louis announced his intention of attacking namur in five days he was under the walls of that city at the head of more than thirty thousand men twenty thousand peasants pressed in those parts of the netherlands which the french occupied were compelled to act as pioneers luxembourg with eighty thousand men occupied a strong position on the road between namur and brussels and was prepared to give battle to any force which might attempt to raise the siege this partition of duties excited no surprise it had long been known that the great monarch loved sieges and that he did not love battles he professed to think that the real test of military skill was a siege the event of an encounter between two armies on an open plain was in his opinion often determined by chance but only science could prevail against ravelins and bastions which science had constructed his detractors sneeringly pronounced it fortunate that the department of the military art which his majesty considered as the noblest was one in which it was seldom necessary for him to expose to serious risk a life invaluable to his people namur situated at the confluence of the sambre and the meuse was one of the great fortresses of europe the town lay in the plain and had no strength except what was derived from art but art and nature had combined to fortify that renowned citadel which from the summit of a lofty rock looks down on a boundless expanse of cornfields woods and meadows watered by two fine rivers the people of the city and of the surrounding region were proud of their impregnable castle their boast was that never in all the wars which had devastated the netherlands had skill or valour been able to penetrate those walls the neighbouring fastnesses famed throughout the world for their strength 
Antwerp and Ostend, Ypres, Lyle and Tournay, Mons and Valenciennes, Cambrai and Charleroi, Limburg and Luxembourg, had opened their gates to conquerors, but never once had the flag been pulled down from the battlements of Namur. That nothing might be wanting to the interest of the siege, the two great masters of the art of fortification were opposed to each other. Vauban had during many years been regarded as the first of engineers, but a formidable rival had lately arisen, Menno, baron of Cohorn, the ablest officer in the service of the states-general. The defences of Namur had been recently strengthened and repaired under Cohorn's superintendence, and he was now within the walls. Vauban was in the camp of Louis. It might therefore be expected that both the attack and the defence would be conducted with consummate ability. By this time the Allied armies had assembled, but it was too late. William hastened towards Namur. He menaced the French works, first from the west, then from the north, then from the east. But between him and the lines of circumvallation lay the army of Luxembourg, turning as he turned, and always so strongly posted that to attack it would have been the height of imprudence. Meanwhile the besiegers, directed by the skill of Aubin and animated by the presence of Louis, made rapid progress. There were indeed many difficulties to be surmounted and many hardships to be endured. The weather was stormy, and on the 8th of June, the Feast of St. Medard, who holds in the French calendar the same inauspicious place which in our calendar belongs to St. Swithin, the rain fell in torrents. The sambre rose and covered many square miles on which the harvest was green. The machin whirled down its bridges to the Meuse. All the roads became swamps. The trenches were so deep in water and mire that it was the business of three days to move a gun from one battery to another. The six thousand wagons which had accompanied the French army were useless. It was necessary that gunpowder, bullets, corn, hay should be carried from place to place on the backs of the war-horses. Nothing but the authority of Louis could, in such circumstances, have maintained order and inspired cheerfulness. His soldiers, in truth, showed much more reverence for him than for what their religion had made sacred. They cursed St. Medard heartily, and broke or burned every image of him that could be found. But for their king there was nothing that they were not ready to do and to bear. In spite of every obstacle they constantly gained ground. Cohorn was severely wounded while defending with desperate resolution a fort which he had himself constructed, and of which he was proud. His place could not be supplied. The governor was a feeble man whom Gastanaga had appointed, and whom William had recently advised the elector of Bavaria to remove. The spirit of the garrison gave way. The town surrendered on the eighth day of the siege, the citadel about three weeks later. The history of the fall of Namur in 1692 bears a close resemblance to the history of the fall of Mons in 1691. Both in 1691 and in 1692, Louis, the sole and absolute master of the resources of his kingdom, was able to open the campaign, before William, the captain of a coalition, had brought together his dispersed forces. In both years the advantage of having the first move decided the event of the game. At Namur, as at Mons, Louis, assisted by Vauban, conducted the siege. Luxembourg covered it. William vainly tried to raise it, and, with deep mortification, assisted as a spectator at the victory of his enemy. In one respect, however, the fate of the two fortresses were very different. Mons was delivered up by its own inhabitants. Namur might perhaps have been saved if the garrison had been as zealous and determined as the population. Strange to say, in this place, so long subject to a foreign rule, there was found a patriotism resembling that of the little Greek commonwealths. There is no reason to believe that the burghers cared about the balance of power, or had any preference for James or for William, for the most Christian king or for the most Catholic king. But every citizen considered his own honour as bound up with the honour of the maiden fortress. 
It is true that the French did not abuse their victory. No outrage was committed. The privileges of the municipality were respected. The magistrates were not changed. Yet the people could not see a conqueror enter their hitherto unconquered castle without tears of rage and shame. Even the barefooted Carmelites, who had renounced all pleasures, all property, all society, all domestic affection, whose days were all fast days, who passed month after month without uttering a word, were strangely moved. It was in vain that Lewis attempted to soothe them by marks of respect and by munificent bounty. Whenever they met a French uniform, they turned their heads away with a look which showed that a life of prayer, of abstinence, and of silence had left one earthly feeling still unsubdued. This was perhaps the moment at which the arrogance of Lewis reached the highest point. He had achieved the last and the most splendid military exploit of his life. His confederated foes, English, Dutch, and German, had, in their own despite, swelled his triumph, and had been witnesses of the glory which made their hearts sick. His exultation was boundless. The inscriptions on the medals which he struck to commemorate his success, the letters by which he enjoyed the prelates of his kingdom to sing the Te Deum, were boastful and sarcastic. His people, a people among whose many fine qualities moderation and prosperity cannot be reckoned, seemed for a time to be drunk with pride. Even Boileau, hurried along by the prevailing enthusiasm, forgot the good sense and good taste to which he owed his reputation. He fancied himself a lyric poet, and gave vent to his feelings in a hundred and sixty lines of frigid bombast about Alcides, Mars, Bacchus, Ceres, the lyre of Orpheus, the Thracian oaks, and the Permetian nymphs. He wondered whether Namur had, like Troy, been built by Apollo and Neptune. He asked what power could subdue a city stronger than that before which the Greeks lay ten years, and he returned answer to himself that such a miracle could be wrought only by Jupiter or by Lewis. The feather in the hat of Lewis was the lodestar of victory. To Lewis all things must yield, princes, nations, winds, waters. In conclusion, the poet addressed himself to the banded enemies of France, and tauntingly bade them carry back to their homes the tidings that Namur had been taken in their sight. Before many months had elapsed, both the boastful king and the boastful poet were taught that it is prudent as well as graceful to be modest in the hour of victory. One mortification Lewis had suffered even in the midst of his prosperity. While he lay before Namur, he heard the sounds of rejoicing from the distant camp of the Allies. Three peals of thunder from a hundred and forty pieces of cannon were answered by three volleys from sixty thousand muskets. It was soon known that these salutes were fired on account of the Battle of La Hogue. The French king exerted himself to appear serene. "'They make a strange noise,' he said, about the burning of a few ships. In truth, he was much disturbed, and the more so because a report had reached the Low Countries that there had been a sea-fight, and that his fleet had been victorious. His good humour, however, was soon restored by the brilliant success of those operations which were under his own immediate direction. When the siege was over, he left Luxembourg in command of the army, and returned to Versailles. At Versailles the unfortunate Tourville soon presented himself, and was graciously received. As soon as he appeared in the circle, the king welcomed him in a loud voice. "'I am perfectly satisfied with you, and with my sailors. We have been beaten, it is true, but your honour and that of the nation are unsullied.' Though Lewis had quitted the Netherlands, the eyes of all Europe were still fixed on that region. The armies there had been strengthened by reinforcements drawn from many quarters. Everywhere else the military operations of the year were languid and without interest. The Grand Vizier and Louis of Baden did little more than watch each other on the Danube. Marshal Noir and the Duke of Medina Sidonia did little more than watch each other under the Pyrenees. 
On the upper Rhine, and along the frontier which separates France from Piedmont, an indecisive predatory war was carried on, by which the soldiers suffered little, and the cultivators of the soil much. But all men looked, with anxious expectation of some great event, to the frontier of Brabant, where William was opposed to Luxembourg. Luxembourg, now in his sixty-sixth year, had risen, by slow degrees and by the deaths of several great men, to the first place among the generals of his time. He was of that noble house of Montmorency, which united many mythical and many historical titles to glory, which boasted that it sprang from the first Frank who was baptized in the name of Christ in the fifth century, and which had, since the eleventh century, given to France a long and splendid succession of constables and marshals. In valor and abilities Luxembourg was not inferior to any of his illustrious race. But, highly descended and highly gifted as he was, he had with difficulty surmounted the obstacles which impeded him in the road to fame. If he owed much to the bounty of nature and fortune, he had suffered still more from their spite. His features were frightfully harsh, his stature was diminutive, a huge and pointed hump rose on his back. His constitution was feeble and sickly. Cruel imputations had been thrown on his morals. He had been accused of trafficking with sorcerers and with vendors of poison, had languished long in a dungeon, and had at length regained his liberty without entirely regaining his honor. He had always been disliked both by Louvois and by Louis. Yet the war against the European coalition had lasted but a very short time when both the minister and the king felt that the general who was personally odious to them was necessary to the state. Conde and Turenne were no more, and Luxembourg was without dispute the first soldier that France still possessed. In vigilance, diligence, and perseverance he was deficient. He seemed to reserve his great qualities for great emergencies. It was on a pitched field of battle that he was all himself. His glance was rapid and unerring. His judgment was clearest and surest when responsibility pressed heaviest on him and when difficulties gathered thickest around him. To his skill, energy, and presence of mind his country owed some glorious days. But, though eminently successful in battles, he was not eminently successful in campaigns. He gained immense renown at William's expense and yet there was, as respected the objects of the war, little to choose between the two commanders. Luxembourg was repeatedly victorious, but he had not the art of improving a victory. William was repeatedly defeated, but of all generals he was the best qualified to repair a defeat. End of section 2. Recording by Genramundo.